rights. Uh, it took, you know, decades for the Civil Rights Act to be passed and the right for all women to vote. Uh, even Mothers Against Drunk Driving, it took them over a decade to pass the laws they needed to slow the rate of drunk driving deaths. Hello, and welcome back to I Wonder Job, the podcast. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action. After the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting, Shannon was devastated. Like many of us, she assumed the tragedy would create outrage and change. But when legislative and social change didn't appear and the status quo remained, Shannon channeled her outrage and grief by starting a Facebook page for her few dozen online friends. Almost seven years later, that single page has evolved into Moms Demand Action, a political powerhouse and one of the largest grassroots organizations in the country. As a mom of two, I think about the topic of gun safety often. So for today's conversation, a friend of mine in the show's Willow Older is co-hosting the show. As a mom of two sons, this is the topic we both wanted to explore. Willow, thanks for joining me. Tell us, what are you working on these days? Hey, Paulina. It's great to be back. I love the show and I love that I get to be part of it on occasion. And I'm super excited, especially to talk to today's guest because she's so impressive and amazing. Um, I'm a writer, as you know. I'm working away with different clients and my goal is to make words work. Well, I'm happy you've joined for this show. We're going to discuss Shannon's new book, Fight Like a Mother, which is part memoir, part manual and part manifesto. We talk about Shannon's journey as an accidental activist and find out how Moms Demand Action is changing perceptions and creating unlikely allies in the battle for common sense gun safety legislation. Shannon shares how she manages to rise above cynicism. We learn why losing forward is a crucial part of reaching big long-term goals, and we find out how Moms Demand Action is creating volunteer leaders across the nation. After this conversation with Shannon, we felt inspired and motivated to participate in our own way towards causes we believe in, and we think you'll feel this way too. Here is Shannon Watts. Shannon, I am so thrilled you're joining us today. Um, You're the founder of Moms Demand Action, and it all started one Facebook page after the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, You're on your sixth year. Yeah, it'll be seven years in December, uh, so just in a month. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. So seven years in six million members and please correct me if any of the stats are wrong chapters in every state. Um, any other kind of, uh, stats that you share with how big you've gotten? Yeah. So, I mean, we have become a political powerhouse in every single state house. Um, and in addition, we have launched students demand action and they now have over 350 groups across the country and, and volunteers in every state too. So it's, not just the largest gun violence prevention grassroots movements actually become one of the largest grassroots movements in the country full stop amazing so i i saw you speaking when you were um, talking about your new book fight like a mother and which i think is extraordinary i'm so glad i read it cover to cover highlighted so many pages tell us when you decided to write the book and how you came up with the title Yeah, you know, it was actually uh, an agent had reached out to me about five years in, just a month or so before the tragedy in Parkland, Florida. And she said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And of course, I hadn't had time to think about or to write a book. Um, But it did make sense to me to kind of look at it for three reasons. One, part memoir. I've been asked so many times to talk about what it's like to be the tip of the spear on an issue that can be very volatile. Um, Two, part 
manual. I get asked all the time by volunteers across the country and, and really anyone to say, you know, how did you do this? And then how could I do something like this on an issue I'm passionate about? So I wanted to capture that. And then part manifesto. I just think it's so important for people, in particular women, to run for office. Only 17% of all the elected positions in this country are held by women. There are 500,000 elected positions. So as the proverb goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And those are really the three reasons I wrote the book. Uh, we started writing it that spring and finished in October and then launched in May. And so it was really sort of a, a whirlwind labor of love. Wonderful. Um, Shannon, tell us a little bit about the process. Like you, you used the word we in terms of writing the book. Was this, um, obviously it's your memoir, it's your manifesto, it's your manual, but tell us a little bit how you approached it. Yeah, so I had a co-writer, her name is Kate Hanley, she's in Rhode Island, uh, and she really helped me because I, you know, after, as you can imagine, after the Parkland tragedy, I basically sat in a chair and did interviews for months, uh, or I was traveling to acknowledge all of the people who got off the sidelines. We actually tripled in size in the weeks and months following the Parkland tragedy, um, from tens of thousands of volunteers to hundreds of thousands of volunteers. So Kate helped me go back in the archives and remember everything we had done and how we'd done it so we could explain that. Um, and so together, we just wrote chapters. Uh, we took a chapter at a time to make sure we were telling the story completely. And that was really the process. And it only took, I would say, about five to six months. Mm, that's remarkable. Um, and I, one of the things that I really love about this book is any, any one of these three um, approaches that you mentioned, memoir, manual, and manifesto. I feel like any one of them could have been a complete book in of themselves. <laughs> but you did such a wonderful job of, you know, integrating these pieces. And they really just shared the whole, you know, the big picture story of not just what the organization is about, but how it came to be and who you were then and who you are now. Um, and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about the decision to really make this um, about tactics and action for women who maybe gun violence isn't their number one concern, but they're interested in organizing and bringing about change because you really give so much information for women who wanna follow in your footsteps in some way. Well, it's important to remember that when I started Moms to Man Action, you know, I knew nothing about gun laws. I knew nothing about organizing. I just knew our nation was broken and that something had to be fixed. Uh, and that I thought women were the way to do that. I had grown up in the 80s when Mothers Against Drunk Driving was really pivotal in teens' lives uh, about drinking and driving. And to me, that was what I wanted to be part of, a, a badass army of women. And that, that was how I came to describing how we had done it because I thought it was different. I, I felt it was different than other organizations. And I've had a lot of people tell me when you join other organizations, often women are asked to do sort of the menial tasks like setting up chairs or getting a venue, making snacks. And then men are really the ones who get to set the strategy and take the spotlight. And Moms in Action, even though we're mothers and others now, there are lots of men and non-moms, but it is really women who are leading and leading you know, soup to nuts, everything from picking a venue to doing the interviews on television and deciding what makes sense for their state. 
And so that is, it was really in that vein that I wanted to show how we had done this and how it was unique to women um, and how anyone can use their voices and their votes on this issue. You know, I've, I know that women who've had taken leadership roles with Mom Demand Action are going on to public service roles. Can you talk to us about a few of those? Yeah, that's really become Moms 2.0. It's something I never expected was that women who were given the skills to be activists would want to become advocates. And by that, I mean serving an elected office, not just shaping policy, but actually making it. And I just am so blown away by these amazing women. And look, the truth is, if you spend time in your state house, you very quickly really realize these are not rocket scientists. Um, they're average people and, and maybe not even as qualified as the average mom is. So when you have that realization that you can do this, that you could probably do it better, it's just sort of a logical next step to move into lawmaking. And in 2018, uh, we had about 40 of our volunteers run for office across the country, everything from school board to city council to Congress. Uh, 17 of them won. Uh, and I'm incredibly proud of the fact that Lucy McBath, who is a gun violence survivor and a former Moms Demand Action spokeswoman, is now a congresswoman from Georgia. And the first thing she did five days after she was sworn in was to co-sponsor and help pass a background checks bill the first sweeping gun reform legislation to make it through a chamber of Congress in decades. Uh, so women, when they run, they make a difference. And I'm so thrilled to see so many of them jumping into the fray. Uh, Shannon, it, you know, so it comes across so clearly in this book that you believe and have really seen borne out time and again that women are not just uh, great leaders um, and in a great position to lead a grassroots movement, but they're actually uniquely qualified. Maybe tell us a little bit about who you were when you started uh, your first Facebook page, which led to this hugely successful organi organization, and a little bit about the experiences and qualifications that moms end up with, maybe unintentionally. Yeah, you know, I was always sort of a type A a uh, driven person. I certainly was successful in my corporate communications career. And then I decided to take a break. Uh, my husband and I were blending a family of five kids and many of them were sort of middle school age when you know they can start to get into trouble. And so I thought, I'm just gonna see what happens and then I'll go back into the work world in a few years. And when the Sandy Hook school shooting tragedy happened, I had been a stay-at-home mom for about five years and was just then thinking about getting back into corporate life. All the skills that I had accumulated both as a mom and as someone in the workforce really helped me um, get this organization off the ground. And I just wanna be clear, I had one very specific skill set when it came to my corporate life, which was communications, messaging, branding. And I think that helped us seem very credible and sophisticated off the bat, um, that we had a look and a feel and a message. But then I was grateful so many other volunteers brought their skill sets to the table, website development, lawyers, uh, organizers, policy experts, um, stay-at-home moms, working moms, you name it. They really came to the table and, and helped make this happen. But I think my skill set as a mom, you know, I always say all the energy and passion I bring to this issue, I was unfortunately bringing to my children's lives and in particular their homework. Uh, so they were very relieved that I had a different outlet for that. 
but you know, time management and uh, negotiating contracts and all of the different things you deal with with kids can be applied not just to activism, but to, to lawmaking and, and other policymaking positions as well. Things that we do in our daily lives translate into this other important place where you know, we come with a lot of credibility. I, I think it's important to remember that in many ways, moms are the um, kind of the ethical and the moral center of American lives, whether that's fair or not. You know, when uh, prohibition happens, that was really the first time women were allowed to get off the sidelines in America because temperance was considered a Christian value. And, and really, men have never been able to put that genie back in the bottle. We have been on the front lines of activism from then all the way up until the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. And it really, I think, is the secret sauce to organizing. Yeah, Shannon, in your book, you, you talk about, and I know in the organization, you're not anti-gun, you're for gun, you know, common sense gun laws, and that your father, when you started, was actually, um, I think you said, not an advocate, but then right. around. So can you tell us about kind of that, that journey that he made with you and how it was able to turn around, how maybe you've seen other people turning their mind, changing their minds? Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting. There is a misunderstanding, I think, that if you support common sense gun laws, which 90% of Americans do, 80% of gun owners, 74% of NRA members, that somehow you're anti-gun or you want to undo the Second Amendment. And many of our volunteers are gun owners or they're married to gun owners. Um, there are 400 million guns in this country. This is simply about restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights. And I get asked a lot, you know, how do we, how do we change the minds of gun extremists, which is really a vocal minority in this country? And the answer is you're probably not. And, and you frankly don't have to because if we can get what has for too long been the silent majority to vote, then, then we win. But here's the issue is that sometimes those gun extremists can be family and friends and neighbors. And so we do have to have these conversations and we know that we can change hearts and minds. We've seen that over and over again, particularly with Republican lawmakers. Um, after the mass shooting this August in Dayton, Ohio, five leading Republicans uh, went from being NRA advocates to advocating for gun safety. Um, my dad is someone who voted for Donald Trump, and he is a very uh, conservative person who lives in, in Illinois, uh, and he and his wife both supported Donald Trump. His, his initial instinct when I started Moms in Action was to oppose it and to see it as, as something that was progressive. And the more he learned about the gun laws in this country, and, and he's incredibly religious as well, he's a very devout Catholic, the more he realized that uh, being against gun violence was really part of his pro-life agenda, that you couldn't be pro-life without thinking about how does gun violence impact America, given that 100 Americans are shot and killed every day. So that was his way of coming at the issue. It's certainly not mine, but his way of, coming to support this issue and being able to show up now at Moms to Men Action events wearing our shirts um, was to consider how it really fit into his values and his belief system. Shannon, I want you to, with, with uh, Thanksgiving on the horizon <laughs> and many people anticipating um, perhaps with some knot of anxiety in their stomach coming together with family members and friends who, you know, obviously are not always going to be on the same page. If you have, how about some tips 
for those of us uh, getting around the dinner table um, and anticipating some intense conversations, anything you've learned, whether it's from, you know, talking with your dad and on a much larger scale and being able to change minds and change positions. Yeah, so it's a great question because that is when we come together and have these conversations and you know, the important thing to remember is that we have to come to the table, literally the Thanksgiving table with facts and with data and not just emotion and, and anecdotes. And so we have a whole program. If you go to uh, the hashtag on Twitter, Talking Turkey, you will see how we have created uh, how to have this conversation during the holiday season. Uh, and it gives you, like my book does, sort of rebuttals to some of the myths that are so often um, perpetuated by the gun lobby. For example, you know, criminals will always find a way to get guns or background checks already exist. You know, the things that you hear, even when you're meeting with your lawmakers over and over again, things that aren't true. And so I would strongly recommend people seek that out um, before they sit down to Thanksgiving and so that they can have a conversation that's rational, that's fact-based, um, and then maybe you can even change hearts and minds. Yeah. I love that. You just led into my next question because chapter eight, I have it so ready and memorized for Thanksgiving. Um, what do you think are the kind of the top three myths um, that you hear over and over again that you wish more people were aware of? Well, I would say the first is that uh, there already, background checks already exist. There are federal background checks required on licensed gun sales, but not unlicensed gun sales. Lawmakers in the 90s never imagined an online marketplace where guns would be sold, sold so easily. Um, and so we need to close that loophole at the state and federal level. Uh, 21 states have done so, so far. But millions of people have gotten guns through unlicensed sales. And many of those people are dangerous and shouldn't have guns. Um, obviously the myth that criminals will get guns no matter what. Uh, this isn't true. When we look at states with stronger gun laws, we see fewer dangerous people getting guns and we see more lives saved. And so when you look at the states, we know that these gun laws work. Uh, there is no so-called silver bullet. It takes a variety of, of laws to help save lives, just like automobile deaths back in the, the 70s and 80s. Uh, it wasn't one thing. It wasn't just speed limits or just seatbelt laws. It was a whole host of laws, and, and we still have traffic traffic, but that isn't a reason to sort of throw up our hands and say we shouldn't have laws. Uh, and then, you know, I would also say um, that uh, background checks don't work. Uh, we look at states like Colorado and Connecticut uh, that have stronger background check laws, and we know they're keeping guns out of the hands of felons and criminals, uh, domestic abusers, even minors. Um, and so, again, when we look at the states, that's really our petri dish to point us in the right direction of what federal laws should we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember you, there's an example of how in Chicago people say, well, look, you know, there's all this violence and you had to say, I think that, that Indiana, people might, they might be getting their guns there. Is, am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah, so that, that is sort of the Groundhog's Day of uh, gun lobby myths, which is, you know, if, if we had stronger gun laws, then Chicago would be you know, a beacon of, of gun safety. Chicago, Illinois does have decent gun laws. They're not the strongest, especially when you compare them to the laws of other high income countries. Uh, but Chicago is just 20 minutes from the state line of Indiana. And Indiana has some of the most lax gun laws in the country. And so when we look at crime guns in Chicago, about 20% come from Indiana, but three in five come from other states. And so 
each city, each state is only as safe as the neighboring state with the weakest gun laws. We've seen that over and over again. Um, and that's why we really do need federal laws in place. Something you just touched on, Shannon, that I think is also part of a persuasive um, you know, argument um, and something that also gets lost because the headlines these days are dedicated to mass shootings. Um, the terrifying rates of gun violence connected to domestic abuse and also to suicide. Yes, so um, we talk a lot about gun homicide, but it's important to remember what an incredible, out outrageous problem we have with domestic gun violence in this country. Most mass shootings are spurred by an incident of domestic violence, and most occur in uh, people's private homes. Those are not so-called gun-free zones. Um, and so you know, Nicholas Kristof has a really imp uh, just profound saying, which is that in other countries, brutish husbands put their wives in hospitals. In America, they put them in graves, and that's because they have easy access to guns. Um, in terms of suicide, gun suicide, it's about two-thirds of the gun deaths in this country when you look at the 40,000 gun deaths. Now, 20,000 or, uh, you know, 12,000 or so gun homicides is still outrageous compared to other high-income countries, but our gun suicide crisis is really off the charts um, and getting worse, whether it's farmers or veterans or minors uh, who have easy access to guns. And so we work specifically when it comes to gun suicide on a red flag law. Red flag laws, uh, we've passed now 12 since the Sandy Hook tragedy. Uh, but now they're in 17 states altogether. And these laws, depending on the state, allow families or police officers to petition a judge to get a temporary restraining order that removes guns from someone who is a danger to themselves or others. These laws have been found to be effective both in gun suicide and domestic gun violence, even mass shootings, uh, and, and interrupting that violence. And so when we look at this issue, we have to look at it holistically. And, and this is also where I would point out that mass shootings and school shootings they make the headlines, but they're about 1% of the gun violence in this country. When you look at the, the daily gun violence that is tearing apart the fabric of our communities, it's gun homicides, gun suicides, and in particular, it's marginalized communities. Yeah, there's this stat that on average, 50 women a month are killed with gun violence. That was That's right. unbelievable. Yes, over 50 women, and that doesn't include the over 4 million women who are alive uh, today that have been threatened by domestic abusers with guns, even if they're never injured or killed. Um, the, the presence of guns in a domestic situation makes it five times more likely that a woman will be shot and killed. You know, that reminds me, you talk in the book about the, the example with Rhode Island and the change that you tried to make there and how it took, I think, a, several years. Five, five years. Amazing. And so, so around, let's talk about the speed of change, because that's something I think mm. that um, you must have learned so deeply and wish you what you want to encourage others to be aware of and not to get discouraged because it happens. It just takes so long. That's right. And incrementalism is so often a dirty word when we're talking about politics. Uh, look, I'm all for wholesale change. And if it can happen overnight, great. But in the meantime, we have to do the heavy lifting. And I always say women are doing the unglamorous heavy lifting of activism in this country, you know, unpaid labor, uh, because it is, the system is set up for this change to happen slowly. Uh, and so if you aren't showing up at every single gun bill hearing, if you aren't showing up at every town hall to keep this issue on the agenda, uh, if you aren't 
thanking and shaming your lawmakers when they do the right or wrong thing, then you're missing how democracy often happens. Uh, it took you know, decades for the Civil Rights Act to be passed and the right for all women to vote. Uh, even Mothers Against Drunk Driving, it took them over a decade to pass the laws they needed to slow the rate of drunk driving deaths. So we show up every single day uh, as volunteers to hold lawmakers accountable. And in Rhode Island specifically, um, you know, again, most lawmakers in this country, about 80% of them are, are men. So it took a long time to get that bill passed, in particular because of the gun lobby's impact in the state of Rhode Island, but also because the gun lobby was telling these lawmakers that guns would be taken away from innocent men whose wives or girlfriends had erroneously accused them of domestic violence. And so there's just a lot of systemic sexism that's built into the system that we have to overcome. Uh, it finally took doing a data research report that showed how easily domestic abusers were getting guns in Rhode Island, uh, even though they were prohibited purchasers. And now we're recently uh, releasing, we just recently released a study in Rhode Island that showed that even though we've passed this law, judges, mostly men, aren't necessarily checking the box when a domestic abuser comes before them and said, they don't ask them if they have guns and so that they can be removed. So we have to keep on this, again, drips on a rock, and that's how change happens. And it doesn't happen overnight, unfortunately. Shannon, one of the phrases that you use throughout the book is this idea of losing forward. And I think this is probably a good moment to, to talk about that and understand why it is a positive thing and an inevitable thing. Yeah, so when you get into any social justice issue, uh, including gun violence prevention, you are going to lose, especially when you're up against one of the most powerful, wealthy, special interests that has ever existed. Uh, the gun lobby had about a 30-year head start, and we really were sort of David versus Goliath in, in the early years of this work. And so we lost a lot, and we still lose, um, not as much, thankfully, but that failure is really feedback. If you got discouraged every time you lost, you would never continue moving forward. And so we celebrate um, even losses and, and what was gained during that loss. And to me, the best example of this is Arkansas. Um, I would meet in the first couple of years with the same handful of very nice women in Little Rock, but they really weren't growing. And, and I think there was a cynicism around whether this issue was worth people's time in the state of Arkansas. And then what happened was a guns on campus bill sailed through the state house, was signed into law by the governor with the chief NRA lobbyist standing next to him. And it so outraged uh, Moms to Man Action volunteers, but also women and uh, mothers across the state that we overnight grew from about two local groups to over two dozen. And the first thing they did with their newfound size was to carve out an exemption so that you couldn't bring guns to Razorback Stadium where there was drinking and tailgating. I mean, that seems like common sense, but that was something we, we had to go back in and do right away. The next year, two of our Arkansas volunteers ran for office and won. One was a professor at the university in Fayetteville and the other one was a retired nurse who beat the man who puts the guns on campus bill forward. She beat him by 12 points. And then the year after that, last year, we had become so powerful in the state that even though there's a, a Republican supermajority, we beat back a stand your ground bill twice. And 
Republican Arkansas lawmakers were interviewed afterward and said, the NRA's agenda was too extreme for the state of Arkansas. <laughs> so if we had given up after the guns on bill campus, guns on campus bill passed, we never would have had all of the wins we've had since then um, and will continue to have in, in a state where this is a tough issue. Shannon, there's a uh, stat um, around shooting accuracy for New York City police officers, and it's only 34%. Is that, am I getting that one right? Yeah, it's, some studies show it's around 30 or less than 30%. Okay, so I, when I read that, and then you talk about how, you know, knowing that accuracy rate and how you're working so hard to keep guns out of schools and the stand your ground, like, that seems to me like such an extraordinary kind of stat to keep in mind as we think about all this work you're doing. Um, and, and I know actually you also mentioned the unglamorous work of, of what Moms Demand Action chapters are doing. Can you talk to about all, some of those bills that you're successfully mm -hmm. keeping out? Yeah, so you know, the, what you bring up is a, a great point, which is um, that civilians are somehow using a defensive gun use to save lives. And, and we know that this is a myth, um, that it does happen, but it's very few and far between. Certainly nothing equal to the 100 Americans who are shot and killed every day in this country. Um, and, and that's really the gun lobby's way of, of trying to get people to buy guns. Um, and, and when you talk about the bills that we have to beat back every year, it is arming teachers. Uh, the majority of teachers in this country do not want to be armed. Police do not think they should be armed. The idea that we're going to turn teachers into sharpshooters is absurd. Mm -hmm. um, but it also applies to Stand Your Ground, which is another bill that we have to beat back every year. Uh, the other bills that we see over and over again are forcing guns onto college campuses, um, and also something called permitless carry, which has now passed in over a dozen states. And that means that you can take a hidden loaded handgun in public uh, with absolutely no background check, no training, no permitting. Uh, it's the gun lobby's dream. It's a public safety nightmare. We have a 90% track record of beating back bad NRA bills every single year for five years in a row in our state houses across the country. Um, and in addition, we, even though the NRA gave Donald Trump $30 million, where they were one of the largest outside donors to his campaign, they were not able to pass any of their priority legislation with both a Republican president and Congress for two years. And that was because we have gotten so good at playing defense. Um, but we also show up in state houses every year as I mentioned, we've closed the background check loophole now in 21 states. We've passed red flag laws in 17. We've passed laws that disarm domestic abusers in 28. Uh, and on top of that, we focus on responsible gun storage laws. Uh, we focus on um, ensuring that teachers and students know about responsible gun storage through policies. Um, and we also uh, work to make sure that cities have the right to pass the laws that they want to. Um, we've recently passed assault weapons bans in Boulder and Pittsburgh. Some of those are being adjudicated right now in the courts, but every, everything helps. All policies, all laws, all acts by corporations. It really creates this momentum that will eventually point the president and Congress in the right direction. Shannon, as you listen to the Democratic presidential debates as they are ongoing, what, if anything, are you observing that is different in the talking points around gun control and gun laws this time around? 
Yeah, so this is the first time we've ever seen candidates compete to see who can be the best on this issue. It was for a very long time a third rail issue in American politics. Um, and even Democrats, you know, either were beholden to the gun lobby or they did not want to touch this or talk about it. Uh, you may remember back in 2016 that uh, candidates were really having to show their, their bona fides to be able to talk about this issue. And uh, they did not, they, they sort of bowed to the gun lobby uh, and had to say they were duck hunters or skeet shooters or, you know, whatever it was that they were. Um, but now we're seeing them talk about this openly. And I think it's because there are hundreds of Moms Demand Action volunteers who show up wearing our red shirts and showing that, you know, if lawmakers and candidates do the right thing, we'll have their back. If they don't, we'll have their job. Um, and so we're seeing them give as much uh, energy and as much innovation to this issue as they are the economy or healthcare or education. And that's really uh, important for this issue because we see now also that this is among the top three issues for voters at a federal and state level. Wow. I think I'm in California, we already have this, the common sense gun laws but there's still areas where, where we can get involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in a blue state or a red state uh, or even a purple state. This issue matters, even though California has strong gun laws. Uh, again, when you compare them to other high income countries, they're not even in the, in the ballpark really. Um, and they can always be strengthened. I mean, in California, just by uh, showing up over and over again and embarking on campaigns for uh, stronger gun laws, we have really moved the ball forward. So in California, uh, we have uh, encouraged and, and gotten the governor to allow $30 million in annual funding now for gun violence interruption programs in places like Oakland, where data shows they work. Um, the budget before was about $9 million, which is way too low for um, the work that's done by these programs. We also helped pass a law that raises the standard for police to be allowed to shoot to kill. Uh, we've added uh, more live fire training to the permitting process in California. So all of these incremental changes matter. They all add up. Uh, but I would also say that you know, if, if you want to get involved even in other states' elections or legislative work, we have a gun sense action network that allows uh, people in every state to make calls or texts into citizens in other places to tell them where to vote, who to vote for, how to vote, but also legislation that is being considered by their lawmakers and how they can make sure that they're registering how they feel about the, the legislation. Mm -hmm. Shannon, one of the things that you talk about, and this is really for, um, for women who, again, are interested in bringing about change, whether it's for gun control laws or um, common sense laws, or maybe it's another issue that they're passionate about. This phrase really caught my eye, and you talk about um, the healthy balance between being accurate and acting quickly. I thought that was really important, especially because women, I think more than men, tend to not always trust themselves. They may want to be, uh, they may need to wait until they're asked to do things, asking for permission. Um, maybe they're focusing on getting consensus on an idea. And this really jumped out at me, um, this healthy balance between being accurate and acting quickly. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I talk in the book about how I think there's certain um, qualities 
that women have to figure out how to address when they're going to be front and center or get off the sidelines. And one of those things is a desire for perfection. Um, if I had waited until there was, I knew everything there was to know about gun violence, gun laws, organizing, I never would have started Moms to in Action. I really just trusted and had faith in these perfect strangers that were helping me across the country. And we decided to, I, I call it in the book, build the plane as we fly it, flew it. And I didn't, I knew that we would make mistakes. I knew that it would be like drinking from a fire hose, but if we had waited, we would have missed the moment. And, and I think I've seen this over and over again uh, with other women who want to start a business or they want to start a, an organization and they just wait so long to feel like they won't make a mistake in public that, that they lose that um, ability to act. And, you know, I think it also comes from sometimes not wanting to give others your work. <laughs> and I think that's twofold. And, and I say this from my own experience. One is the feeling of guilt of asking other people to do things. Um, and the other is feeling sometimes like other people won't do it as well. And you have to let go of both of those things as, as well when you're looking to start anything um, that is going to be valuable or make a difference. Because one, you have to give other people things to do so that they also feel important and integral to the process. But two, you know, we aren't superhuman. And I talk a lot about how activism is a marathon, but it's also a relay race. And so you have to hand the, bat the baton to other people, whether that's asking them to take on work so that you don't get burned out, or whether it's having the time to do self-care. Um, all of these things are important. It does take a community, a village, so to speak. And uh, you know, these are just things I've seen over and over again in, in some of our women volunteers, including myself. And so I wanted to address those in the book. Mm. Well, you've done a wonderful job. I mean, you really have laid out, um, you know, tactics and tips and strategies for succeeding in this kind of, uh, in this kind of work. And I just wonder if you could reflect back a little bit. You've been doing this now for six years. I'm sure on many levels, you feel like you're a totally different person than you were six, almost seven years ago when you sat down and started a Facebook page and shared it with your 75 friends at the time, friends <laughs> and followers. Talk about some of the changes um, in yourself, personally, professionally, and otherwise. Yeah, it has been a huge change in my life. I mean, completely life-altering. Um, personally, you know, I, uh, my marriage has completely changed in a good way. Um, we were only married five years when I started Moms to Me in Action. And so this was a big shift in spending almost every moment together to leading very separate lives. But we've learned so much about how to appreciate each other and to fill in for each other and to support one another, especially with five kids. Um, I've obviously made friendships that will be lifelong because of this work. Um, when you're in the trenches with other activists, it's certainly a bonding experience and very much a sisterhood. Uh, professionally, you know, I went from managing people who were paid to do what I said to um, understanding how to manage volunteers who are doing this out of the kindness of their hearts and, and who I need to show gratitude to for doing this work. And that has been it's my favorite part of my job, so-called job. I'm a full-time volunteer, but my favorite part of my work is that I get to call other volunteers and thank them for what they do. Uh, I make calls every single day and it's just so rewarding and, and really reminds you about the good parts of 
of life. Um, and I can't imagine going back to a job where I wasn't doing something meaningful or um, that drove change in a good way. So it is, I would say that even if you, you know, aren't going, you don't have time and you're not the, have the ability to become a full-time volunteer or activist, even adding some of that into your life um, is profound and will reap good benefits. Shannon, as you, when, when you look back at your early influences and how you grew up, is there anything in there that you can look at and say, okay, this might've been something that led me to this place where now you've demonstrated such courage and leadership to take on this issue. Um. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Rochester, New York, which is the home of so many activists, particularly women activists in this country, uh, whether it's the role that Harriet Tubman played in Rochester, New York, or uh, Susan B. Anthony, or all of the, the suffrage activists uh, and civil rights activists who came from that area. And I can remember on field days and, and different school trips, going and visiting and learning about what these activists did. And I, I do think that had a profound impact on me. Um, I would say the other thing is that I just have a, a pretty strong personality. <laughs> and so when people try to intimidate me or silence me, which is a big part of this work, um, it just makes me angrier. Instead of backing down, I want to double down. And I think that attitude and that feeling is what has kept me in the game, um, especially given that I'm the NRA's nightmare. And I'm just never going to back down from, from a challenge when I know that I'm on the right side of history. But you know, I'm only able to do this work as well as I can because of this grassroots army of volunteers who have my back every single day um, and who really are doing this work where they live every single day because they want to save lives, not just of their families or their community members, but of perfect strangers. And it's really not difficult. It's really not hard to be swept up in the emotion and the bravery of that. Shannon, in this context of the emotional connection to this work that you're doing, I think it's probably fair to say that when you started that first Facebook page, you were driven by both grief and anger. You woke up the day after the Sandy Hook shootings and just felt overcome by well, anger. It was, I think, what you said is one of the leading emotions. But anger and grief are both very hard emotions to sustain. Um, you know, they're exhausting and they're depleting. And I was just thinking about that last week when I was sitting down and reading your book and literally was getting news alerts about the high school shooting in Santa Clarita in Southern California. Does this kind of breaking news, does it dishearten you? Does it simply compel you even, you know, more than ever to keep at this work? How do you, how do you deal with this on an emotional level day after day? Well, I think there are two things there. The first is self-care. And it's really important we tell our volunteers all the time, this, is, this can be traumatizing work, whether you're directly impacted or not. And so it is really important to engage in self-care and take time for yourself. You know, I try to go running every single day. I try to take a bath before I go to bed every single day. To me, those are rewards for, for hard work. Um, and I also make sure, you know, I'm going on vacation and I'm spending time with my, my family. Um, but I also think that, and maybe this is part of my personality, but when I see politicians and pundits saying after these mass shootings that 
America doesn't have the will to act on this, that nothing can be done, when they act hopeless, it's just, to me, it's cynical and it's dangerous because it's sending every average American the message that don't bother to get off the sidelines because, you know, you'll never make an impact. And we don't say that about any other issue, right? Like, when this immigration crisis is going on, I don't hear politicians and pundits saying, like, don't bother, this is just the way it's going to be. People should and, and do feel outraged at injustice. And the fact that 100 Americans are dying by gun violence every day is an outrageous injustice. So I just feel more compelled to, to work on this issue. And it's, it's really my job now as the, the chief volunteer to remind everyone, I travel across the country, I do media, to, to remind everyone that we are winning. Uh, and it isn't hopeless that we have made huge strides in just seven years. And it really is only a matter of a couple of election cycles until we have won on this issue and then we will have to protect the gains we've made. I really do believe that. Yes, yeah, so much of um, what you share is the marathon. And I, I appreciate how you say, it, you know, mothers against drunk driving, it took up to a decade. And I, I think that's so encouraging to hear what you said about a couple election cycles. But a couple of things you've done have happened quickly, such as the, um, the Starbucks. Kind <laughs> of, can you share about that? Because there are things that, that can happen quickly. And so I think it's- Yeah. It's, yeah. You know, uh, you're touching on sort of the cultural part of this work. So we, we work on this legislatively, electorally, and culturally. And we believe companies have a very important role to play. Um, this came about just six months after I started Moms in Action. I saw in the news that Starbucks would no longer allow electronic smoking 20 feet outside their stores, regardless of state law. And so I called and said, well, will you still allow open carry, which is legal in 45 states? It's very dangerous. You can basically carry a handgun or a semi-automatic rifle on your person, visible to the public. And they said they would still follow state laws as it pertained to open carry. And we decided we were much more afraid of secondhand bullets than secondhand smoke. So we were really small. We couldn't even do a full out economic boycott. We just did what we called a momcot. And that was using a hashtag called Skip Starbucks Saturdays. And within three months of making images go viral and using this hashtag to show how we were having coffee at competitors, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, came out and said guns were no longer welcome, not just open carry, but guns. And we realized as women, you know, we make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families, that this was a really important lever we had to pull. And we replicated that at other, over a dozen restaurants and retailers. And then, you know, we had to move from dragging these companies in, kicking and screaming to this issue, to doing proactive outreach so that companies would want to join and be part of the coalition. Um, and that work paid off actually this summer when Walmart, we'd been having conversations with them about stopping open carry for, for years, uh, came out and said that open carry was no longer welcome inside their stores. And then using the hashtag groceries, not guns, over 40 store brands followed suit within the next two weeks. Wow. Um, and after that, over 200 CEOs signed on to a letter asking the Senate to act on the bills that were sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk. So we are definitely seeing a huge shift in terms of companies wanting to be involved and be part of this coalition too. Amazing. And I know that's the message you want to get through, that there is positive change and that people shouldn't remain cynical. Like things are shifting. Things are shifting. And that doesn't mean this isn't tough work and it doesn't mean that um, you know, it's going to happen overnight, but every single win matters, whether it's defensive or offensive. 
you know, we play both sides of that coin and stopping bad bills is as important as passing good bills in many cases. So all of it is happening and I would just encourage people to decide what speaks to them. Um, we also have a program called Be Smart where we educate people about responsible gun storage. And in fact, just got the city of Los Angeles to send responsible gun storage materials home with 700,000 students. So whatever it is that you're interested in electorally, legislatively, culturally, I would just ask people to, to get involved because we don't win this issue until the silent majority becomes the vocal majority. And that's gonna take everyone's voices and votes. Which reminds me, I heard you talking in another podcast about when you, like, a, you have a child going for a sleepover to actually ask if there's a gun in the house, and I never would have thought about that. Oh, yes. So it should, if you want to go to besmartforkids.org, you can see how we recommend people ask that question, because it can be awkward depending on where you live. Mm -hmm. um, but it should be a question you ask, just like, do you have peanuts in the house if your kids has, have an allergy? Do you allow kids to play M-rated video games? Do you have a pool? And how is it protected and safe? And, and given that there are 400 million guns in this country uh, and the, the, the neighbors and friends you have, many of them are likely gun owners, you need to ask that question no matter where you live every time you send your kids to friends and families' homes. Um, I can't tell you how many survivors I've met who said, it was the one question I didn't ask, and my child was shot and killed. And maybe if I'd asked, you know, it would have been prevented. And that may or may not be true, but at least you have the peace of mind. Because if someone says to you, yes, I'm a gun owner, but I, my guns are stored, you know, they're locked, they're unloaded, they're separate from ammunition, then that, that's, you know, you have to make that decision. But that's exactly how we recommend people store their guns. But if they say, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to have that conversation with you, or yeah, I have a handgun in my office, but kids can't find it then the play date should be at your house. Um, I will also say that we had a volunteer who decided to practice by asking her in-laws and found out that they kept a loaded handgun under the bed where her kids slept. And, you know, it's just, I just would highly recommend asking the question. Anna, thank you so much for, for your time and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. I'm so, so grateful that you're spotlighting this issue. Tell us how people can get involved and, um how they can come join. I know you make it, um, you facilitate it to make it easy. We do. So we also have a, a network of volunteers who call to welcome people. And I, I hear so often that people reach out to organizations and they don't hear back. You will hear back from someone very quickly. If you text the word READY to 64433, and you'll immediately um, get plugged into a local meeting or an event that's happening near you and how you can meet all of your like-minded uh, fellow community members and, and it's really a, an empowering and I think life-changing um, form of activism. So again, it's ready to 64433. You can all go, also go to momsdemandaction.org and find out about everything I've been talking about today. Wins, policies, research, um, events, all of it is at momsdemandaction.org. And I really urge people to get your book. Um, amazing. I just. Yeah, thank you. And I do want to point out that all the proceeds go to gun violence prevention organizations. So thank you.